So today we're going to be talking about karma. Uh, karma is a word that most people know. It's intimately tied up actually with the Noble Eightfold Path, which we've been discussing for the last few weeks. Much of the Eightfold Path is concerned with our actions or mental actions. These actions are karma. The concept of karma is commonly understood and widespread in many different societies. As an idea, it preceded the Buddha and was com common in early Brahmanical era India. It was in fact so common and accepted that the Buddha actually re rarely commented on it. So how was it understood then? Uh, how do we understand it in Western culture and how is it commonly understood today? To early India, karma was the idea that our actions and moral and non-moral or immoral ideas were inhering within us and affected our conditions and rebirth as our soul transmigrated. Of course, the Buddha redefined all this. In Asia today and in America, it is mostly considered a case of what goes around comes around. Uh, in the comedy TV series, My Name is Earl, karma was the central point of the stories. And he summarized it as do good things and good things happen to you. Do bad things and bad things happen to you. People tend to blame all sorts of things on bad karma. I had an accident, it was bad karma, or it was karma's fault. In Japan, when bad things happen, it's often seen as a result of ingwa, or bad actions in the past, being manifest, manifest in results today, sometimes with the aid of malevolent beings or upset ancestors. And similarly, good things are also the result of karma. However, everywhere people are more likely to pass the blame to karma, but claim the good as their own doing. It is commonly considered that everything happens from a cause. Karma is often seen as a process of like for like, and also it's often thought to be happening in real time. I stole a lost wallet yesterday, and now my own wallet has been lost or stolen. But there's only five actions that are said to have a definite result of harm to the doer. Matricide, patricide, killing a Buddhist saint, shedding the Buddha's blood, and causing a schism in the holy order. In Japan, love at first sight is considered to be the action of a past marriage, betrothal, or love. Lovers often declare or claim to have seven lifetimes together. If their love is strong, it's because they are seen as being in the middle of one of these multi-lifetime connections. In the West, we do not differentiate between karma, an action undertaken, and its outcome, which is called vipaka, and is related to the fruition of action. To clear some of this confusion, karma is action and vipaka is the fruit of action ripening. Not all action is karmic action. To be karmically charged, it has to be deliberate action and have a number of characteristic, characteristics present. Karma is certainly not a simple black and white worldview. It's not simply linear. Although some karma that ripens has a close resemblance to the action, it is not always the case. 
And one person doing a karmic thing might have a different result from another person doing exactly the same thing. A person with a stack of bad karma doing a bad thing is like a teaspoonful of salt put into a cup. It is strong, noticeable, and repugnant. Someone who has a great stack of good karma doing the same act, it's like a spoonful of salt being put into a lake, barely noticeable. Or it might not ripen at the, in a short while, but it might take a very, very long time when all connection between the action and the result is apparently lost. The Tibetan metaphysics mentions four things that are unthinkable. And if we try to think them through, lead to madness and agitation, the self or personhood, the world, the ripening of karmic actions, and the nature of the Buddha field. So that's why it's, it says it takes a Buddha together with another Buddha to actualize the whole of karmic action. The place where karma is planted, its field of action, is the nature of the soil and how that seed ripens. It also concerns the recipient of the act rather than the doer of the act. For meritorious good acts, helping a worthy cause is better than an unworthy cause. The karma of giving dana, for example, depends on giving with faith, with respect, at the right time, with a generous mind, and without harming oneself or others. No, this is faith, it is not desire. Because if we desire something else, then the karma will be different. Take, for example, the discussion between Bodhidharma and the emperor. The emperor boasted of his good works and all the temples he had built and the thousands of monks he had supported and asked Bodhidharma, how much merit have I acquired? Merit, karmic, good works and every bhaka. How much have I accumulated? The answer from Bodhidharma was none. The motivation was not genuine. It must be an intentional act too. A good result from an unintended act or a bad outcome despite a good intention does not have much karmic result. Therefore, the Buddha emphasized mental actions over physical actions. A fervent aspiration to do good is good soil to plant a karmic seed. Hence, our vows. Our body is built of our past karmic actions. Its operation is not karmic action. Once arisen, it will follow its karmic destiny of a lifetime at a particular set of conditions. For humans, that's three score and ten years. For a mayfly, mayflower, mayfly, one day. The stored karmic stack sets the conditions of the lifetime arisen. The body is built or acquired of past actions, stored in the sankara or the store of volitional actions. This is part of the dependent arising that was also expounded by the Buddha in the first sermon. <clears throat> our set of senses and how they work, including our ideation, is also built on karma. Similarly, the world as we see it with our own minds is the sum of sankara. These are our own sankara, and the sankara of all other sentient beings. We live in a world of all of our making. Our past actions and their past actions, your past actions, 
make the world of now. Afkadi O'Hearn explained the impersonal nature of karma in this way. The metaphysics of karma in the philosophical Buddhist tradition is very difficult to understand compared with how it is understood uh, in, by the popular understanding. It, that is simply enough, signifying no more transmigration or reincarnation. You have lived millions of times in the past and you're likely to live again for millions of times in the future. All the conditions of each birth depending on past conduct. The common notion is that after a certain period of time, sorry, that's my dyslexia. Totally can't see the page at the moment. <laughs> uh, the common notion is that after a certain period of bodilessness in this world, the spirit is guided somehow to the place in the next incarnation. The Japanese people he was speaking of were the 19th century Japanese, and of course, at that time, they believed in ghosts and souls. But there's nothing of all this in the higher doctrine which denies transmigration, denies the existence of a soul, and denies personality and atman. There is no self to be reborn, there is no transmigration, and yet there is rebirth. There is no real I that suffers or is glad, and yet there is new suffering to be born and new happiness to be gained. What we call the self, the personal consciousness, dissolves at the death of the body, but the karma formed during life then brings about the intention of a new body and a new consciousness. You suffer in this existence because of acts done in a previous existence, yet the author of those acts is not identical with your present self. Are you then responsible for the faults of another person? The Buddha metaphysician would answer thus, the form of your question is wrong because it assumes the existence of a personality. And there is no personality. There is really no such individual as you of the inquiry. The suffering is indeed the result of errors committed in some anterior existence or existences, but there is no responsibility for the acts of another person since there is no personality. The I that was and the I that is present in the chain of transitory being aggregations, momently created by acts and thought, and the pain belongs to the aggregates as condition. All this sounds extremely obscure. To understand the real theory, we must put away the notion of personality, which is a very difficult thing for us to do. Successive births do not mean a personal soul transmigrates in the common sense of the word, but only the self-propagation of karma, the perpetual multiplying of certain conditions. One will naturally ask how much can such a doctrine exert moral influence? If the future being shaped by my karma is not identical with my present self, if the future consciousness evolved from my karma is to be essentially another consciousness, how can I force myself to feel anxious about the sufferings of that unborn person? Again, the question is wrong. 
of Buddhist would answer, to understand the doctrine, you must get rid of the notion of individuality and think not of persons, but of successive states of feeling and consciousness, each of which buds out of another, a chain of existences independently united. Karma arises from conditions and seeds, more conditions. Therefore, no karma is permanent. Its fruit has arisen, then it has ended. It is gone. If vipaka has happened, it is also impermanent and gone. No, internal, no eternal heaven and no eternal damnation. It is all finite. The actions we take for the sake of things that are impermanent are subject to impermanence. Why make karma for wrong causes or for impermanent things? Then it must follow that the end cannot justify the means. Just do not seek to pick and choose based on the clinging preference of the mind. The sixth patriarch explained it this way. Yin Zhong also asked, how is it that Buddhism consists of non-dualistic dharmas? I said, your lecture on the Nirvana Sutra's elucidation of the Buddha nature, which is non-dualistic dharma of Buddhism. Just as when the Bodhisattva, king of lofty virtue, asked the Buddha, do those who break the four major prohibitions and commit the five perverse transgressions, as well as the heretics, eradicate their good natures and their good Buddha natures? The Buddha said, there are two types of good roots. One is permanent, the other is impermanent. The Buddha nature is not permanent and not impermanent. Therefore, not to eradicate is, to, is said to be non-dual. One type of roots is said to be the good. The other is the non-good. The Buddha nature is not the good and not the non-good. This is called non-dual. The skandhas, that's what makes our personality, and the sensory realms are seen as two by ordinary people. But the wise comprehend the natures to be non-dual. The non-dual nature is none other than the Buddha nature. So how did the Buddha, Buddhist metaphysicians do with, deal with this multiple lifetimes? They say the world, our sense bases, our thoughts, and the whole heap of suffering that we cling to from ignorance, aversion, and desire, is renewed one thought moment to the next thought moment. And the continuity is like a lamp being used to light the next lamp, or passes from one to a, the other but there is the appearance of continuity. To the Yogacharians, there is nothing that inheres and nothing that contains it either. How about the collective reality we're all experiencing right now, right here, right now, Oan? That is a reflection of the Buddha's Dharma body. That is everywhere and all pervasive. It is the law body of the truth, and it is non-dual. This is why we practice. We sit zazen not out of karmic attempts to change reality or to escape from the fruits of past action. We sit because it is a reflection of our own enlightenment. When we do good actions, when do good actions come to the fore? When, when are they present? They are present when we practice sila. 
and make an effort to follow the Eightfold Path. Do good acts for no reason other than to do them and try hard to make sure our motivation and intention follow. Sila too. Do good and good things do happen around you. It is a reflection of living by the bodhicitta of the four great vows. To live the vow is to be the vow. It's in the very midst of emptiness is perfection. Finish with the words of my one of my favorite writings, the Six Patra Huyinang, his platform teachings. What is the perfect full body of the Buddha? Sorry. What is the perfect full reward body of the Buddha? Just as one lamp can disperse the darkness of a thousand years, one thought of wisdom can destroy 10,000 years of delusion. Do not think of the past, it is gone and can never be recovered. Instead, think always of the future and in every thought, perfect and clear, see your own original nature. Although good and evil differ, the original nature is not dual. That not dual nature is the real nature. Undefiled by either good or evil, it is the perfect full reward body of the Buddha. One evil thought arising from the self-nature destroys 10,000 eons worth of good karma. One good thought arising from the self-nature ends the evils as numerous as the sands, sand grains in the Ganges River. To reach the unsurpassed Bodhi directly, see it for yourself in every thought and do not lose the original thought. That is the reward body of the Buddha. So I think I left lots of time for questions, which I much prefer questions.